Hi everyone, welcome to the latest episode of the Bun Me Chronicles podcast. This is your host and producer, Randy Kim. For this week's episode of Season 2's 1975 theme, I interviewed Simone Cottrell. She's a multidisciplinarian artist and has spearheaded several theater initiatives in the Fayetteville, Arkansas community. She describes her experience growing up as being mixed, part white and part Cambodian, in the deep south of America. From a small fishing community in the Alabama Gulf Shores to Mississippi, and then currently in the Northwest Arkansas community, she shares her inspiration to pursue arts and theater, and how this have led her into community activism, specifically in her involvement with the anti-deportation movement that has targeted undocumented Latinx communities and the Southeast Asian communities in Arkansas. We met a few months back when she visited Chicago and connected with the National Cambodian Heritage Museum. She spoke about that experience and how it has helped shape her understanding of her Cambodian identity. Throughout this interview, she shows humor, strength, thoughtfulness, and critical candidness. You definitely don't want to miss out on this interview. Special thanks to my sponsor, Lawrence and Argyle, a Vietnam-American-owned merchandise line representing immigrant empowerment. Get yourself a pin, hoodie, or t-shirt and show off your immigrant pride. Visit them at www.lawrenceandargyle.com or follow them on Instagram at lawrenceandargyle or on Facebook. Hi, this is uh, Randy from the Bunby Chronicles podcast, and I am so excited tonight to uh, be talking with my uh, friend, Simone Cottrell. And Simone, how are you today? I am doing really well. I'm really excited. You're, you're breaking my um, podcast virginity. <laughs> this is my well, very first podcast. Yay. I'm really excited. Yay. So yay. anyways, uh, so Simone and I connected through uh, your recent visit to Chicago back in, I want to say late summer, early fall. It was uh, September 2019 because <clears throat> it was my birthday month. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, you're a Virgo, right? I'm a Libra. Oh, you're a Libra. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. I work like a Virgo, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So <clears throat> when um, I, I recalled you were uh, emailing the Kimboni Museum, the Kimboni Museum is uh, an organization that I serve on the board for. So I remember getting your email. And so we had connected and and you shared a lot of interest in visiting the museum for the first time, and uh, and you spoke about being mixed Khmer and mm-hmm. being an artist and being involved in theater over in rural uh, Northwest Arkansas. And so uh, I was very intrigued, and I know that you wanted to uh, to uh, collaborate with the museum, so you made that road trip to Chicago and. and we weren't able to meet up at the museum at that time, but you had met with staff and <clears throat> uh, some of the community leaders that were there. I, well, luckily for us, we went out for ice cream that night and mm-hmm. <laughs> we had talked it up for quite a while that evening. Uh, what really 
what really uh, captured my attention was you were born in Bayou La Battery, Alabama. And I will tell you that uh, my grandparents uh, moved to Bayou La Battery after spending a few years in Chicago. So part of my mom's family had settled down there. Um, my grandma had passed away like about two years ago now. And <clears throat> my uncle's family still lives in the bayou or now they just live outside of uh, Mobile since my grandma's passing. So I definitely have a lot of stories and a connection to that community. Um, for most people who don't know what Bayou Lab Battery is in Alabama, it's actually right in the Gulf Coast. And if you haven't seen Forrest Gump, well, uh, that well, uh, in Forrest Gump, it supposedly takes in place in Biola Battery, even though it never took place there. <laughs> yeah, so. they, they filmed it in South Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> oh. They have better uh, tax uh, revenue there in South Carolina. I guess they couldn't handle Biola Batteries too hardcore. Oh my goodness! I but, mean, but did a... you know that the, did you know that the Black Pearl from parts of the Caribbean? Yes, was yes, there? yes, so it was. We got some sort of film connection. <laughs> <laughs> right, absolutely. I mean, I don't know how many people live in that town. It is a really tiny town. It's uh, There has been a large Southeast Asian community for a number of years up until Hurricane Katrina. So uh, yeah, so we connected on <clears throat> We connected on that commonality. I thought that was really cool and uh, how random of us to have that commonality there. Um, but yes, uh, but anyways, before I go on further, um, I would like for you to uh, introduce yourself, if you don't mind. Yeah, so Simone Cottrell, um, I'm currently a multidisciplinary theater maker um, located in Fayetteville, Arkansas. So when we, we talk about Northwest Arkansas, it's kind of this regional area, um, starting with um, Bentonville, the home of Walmart, all the way oh. down to Fayetteville, the home of University of Arkansas. So, so in the last couple of years, especially with the creation of Crystal Bridges in Bentonville, there has this been a um, common thread throughout all the major cities in Northwest Arkansas, and that would be art. And that's kind of the reason why I do what I do um, and why I'm in Northwest Arkansas is because art economy is real and we need to make space for um, Southeast Asian voices that have been here since 1975. Thank you so much, Simone. I'm looking forward to uh, uh, going further on your work there. And so this season is about the theme 1975. And now 1975 holds a very uh, meaningful um, significance to our Southeast Asian communities. But when you hear the year of 1975, what comes to your mind? Um, I think obviously the most, I mean, the most obvious thing is the history. The uh, 1975 being understood by the world as the beginning of the um, the Khmer Rouge, or Khmer Rouge <clears throat> with the evacuation of Phnom Penh in April, on April 17th, 1975. But in a way, I kind of go, oh, you know, that's how we understand and want to bookmark genocide and and horrible dates, knowing that history or uh, that that date didn't happen by accident. You know, it was well thought out. It was planned out. It was done right after Khmer New Year. My mom um, had already been in slave labor camps for two years by 1975. She, um, as, as long as I can remember, I think she's been in, she was in a labor camp since 1973. So it was two years before 1975. 
And so when we think about 1975, we automatically think of Phnom Penh because of it being a major city, but we tend to forget the rural areas outside that had already been under Khmer Rouge control. And so I, I see it as this, okay, that's how we make sense of history, but also how do we take that date and break it down into why this date was the climax really of what was going on and what was going on before then. Um, in 1975 is also a year for at least Arkansas where um, Fort Chaffee located in Fort Smith, Arkansas, which is about an hour south of Fayetteville, was one of four military bases that allowed for the first wave of Southeast Asian refugees to come through. So we had um, between, I want to say July 1975 through December 1975, 50,000 um, Southeast Asian refugees, mostly Vietnamese, um, then Khmer, then a little bit of Lao. Um, have Fort Chaffee be their last stop in America before they were released, if you will, out into a greater America. Yeah, thank you for shedding a lot of light into this part of history because oftentimes when we think of the 19, of um, the Khmer Rouge, we think of 1975 to 1979, but what is also forgotten is the, the secret bombings of the U.S. of Operation Breakfast of 1970, I believe, during Nixon, mm -hmm. and also the Civil War that had ensued. So between 1970 and 1975, um, it was mired in that Civil War, and Phnom Penh was this last bastion, <clears throat> this big city to finally fall under Khmer Rouge uh, uh, control. So it also gives you like context of what of that the uh, labor camps had gone on long before that, mm -hmm. or or at least uh, closer to that time. And um, the fact that uh, there's a lot of complexities of, of what had really happened, or, uh, because we hear the common theme of what had happened when uh, the Khmer Rouge took control and started the labor camps. But what is often missing is between 1970 and 1975, that I think mm -hmm. is so critical. <clears throat> um, but yes, and, in, in our conversation, uh, you also pointed out that uh, you had wrote a poem in 2015, which is uh, 40 years after uh, the Khmer Rouge anniversary, uh, yeah. right? And you were uh, doing poetry uh, for a number of years before that? I was creative writer, um, short story fiction. Um, so the story that I wrote in 2015 called Chimera was, um, was a piece of fiction um, that I placed in Balabatri, Alabama. Um, and it was, it was based on this woman who was remembering, um, who was remembering night, April 17th, 1975, and when she had to leave Phnom Penh. And um, during uh, 2015 was the 40th anniversary. Um, and I hate using that word anniversary because it feels like a, it should be a celebration and it's not. I don't know what other word to use and we've got to find one. Um, um, but it was also uh, set in the year of um, uh, Katrina, which had happened in 2005. So 2015 to me meant the 40th anniversary of the, um, uh, the genocide, but also the 10 year anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. And here is the central focus of a woman who is elderly, who is um, having to choose displacement again because of a hurricane. 
and she chooses not to leave. Mm -hmm. And, um, so in this short story that I wrote, um, it was this, uh, this, this flashback of what water meant in Cambodian tradition. What, Mm -hmm. what does, (laughs) what does displacement mean? What does it mean to lose home again? Um, it ended up being published by the Tishman Review and I ended up being nominated in 2016 for the PIN America Robert J. Dell, um, Immersion Short Story Writer Award. Oh, wow. That's, yeah. that's incredible. And thank you for sharing that. Uh, when I think of Hurricane Katrina, uh, up until that point, it was 10 years, it was 10 years ago. Now it's 15 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Southeast Asian community uh, have lived alongside Baila, Bad Tree, uh, along the Gulf Coast, uh, the Gulf Port of Mississippi, uh, near New Orleans. So, I recalled when Hurricane Katrina hit how devastating it was for all of our Southeast Asian communities. Uh, it was often forgotten. Uh, we talk about New Orleans, but we but we neglect to talk about the impact of what happened in the Gulf Coast. They were severely impacted. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, my grandparents. Uh, well, my grandfather had died like less than uh, ten years ago, but my grandma and and part of my mom's family they were displaced for for a, I guess at least two years. It wasn't until their house was rebuilt, not through FEMA, it was actually through charity that mm-hmm. rebuilt their homes. And when you talk about how this woman did not want to leave because again, it's like another cycle of displacement, it rings true in some, it, I haven't thought about it, but my grandma never wanted to leave um, Mobile, Alabama, or Bayula Battery, I should say. Uh, she never wanted to leave Alabama, even though she could have lived over in uh, near Boston with my other relatives. Or, but my mom's family saw it as their home, and they couldn't bear to move yet again. Uh, so, I yeah, was wondering it, about that uh, that perspective, uh, the experience uh, when you're writing about Katrina and also the Southeast Asian communities that were living in those parts. Yeah, well, you know, let's even think about our lives currently. Like, I can't even move, like, my my apartment down the street. Like, that was exhausting for me. But to, like, literally be displaced over and over and over again due to no fault of your own, but then also to have the... Um, and as we know, our Cambodian community is deeply uh, Theravada Buddhist and deeply believe in, in karma and karmic action and dharma and to like have a whole community of belief of wondering what did I do in my past life to where I'm literally a ghost going from place to place to place. And, mm. you know, and that is something that weighs so heavily on the mental psyche of the Khmer people of what did I do that was so bad in my past life to where I'm being punished again, Mm. you know, and it's not just, Oh, let's just move to, you know, higher land. No, there is a whole mental spiritual aspect of, of trauma that I don't think has been talked about enough. Mm. And, and, And it needs to, um, and I'm, I'm not a, a psychologist by any means, but I can imagine <laughs> as an artist, um, I can imagine that the torment of 
trauma of being triggered again by simply putting things in a box. What can you take with you? When do I leave? How much time do I have? Mm. How much money do I have? Who will be there to receive me and who will take care of me if I do have to go again? That is a whole level of pain and hurt that I, I can't, I can imagine, but I wasn't there. Mm. And, and I'm not quite sure how to address it other than to create story out of it in an artistic uh, way. I, I think <clears throat> when we, when I have worked with um, or connected with survivors, it's, and including with my own family members, it's really hard for them to wrap their head around what had happened, like what, what really happened because they, because the people that I've talked to, they'll talk about it, but there's a lot of emptiness. I don't know how to describe it, but you, what you just mentioned about like the idea of the karma, um, the, the past lifetime, what do I do to, um, to do better in this life and how to move through that trauma you don't hear a lot about how can we get through the trauma except just let bygones be bygones we've got to move on but mm -hmm. but not being able to find space to really heal they could you one can talk about what they went through but what about our needs and one thing i've one thing i've noticed is that that um and i i feel like i'm gonna go in a very um sketchy territory here so i don't want to say that i'm right on this uh perspective at all but but uh how what i don't see from our community is that what how can we validate how can we make ourselves grow and to strengthen and to uh uplift each other through those difficult periods because mental health is not something that we talk about as a community we um when the first wave of refugees came to the u.s there were no counselors there were no uh experienced kamai uh professional mental health professionals that could you know talk about this uh with our community to help unpack all this trauma and also to consider the um the cultural uh knowledge that uh, that our community has um, has learned up to that point, right? Yeah, like uh, definitely, and I almost have to see it from two different ways. I, I know I, because I want to be able to give grace <laughs> and complete empathy and understanding because mental health in the Western world, like we just didn't start talking about that openly until what ten years ago. Let's yeah. be real about that, you know and the stigma of mental health and counseling, but also how the, uh, when I say stigma, it's hard for me to say stigma because it's a, it's a cultural thing deep in the Southeast Asian community, at least Khmer community, where um, mental health is not a thing. Mm -hmm. And, and it goes back to spiritual, um, I can explain this in a spiritual sense, like you are being haunted by, by past ghosts. Your yeah. mind is being clouded by, by whatever things you've done in the past, right? So there's this almost 
when we talk about we we want to have mental health in our community but we also need to understand our elders are still kind of stuck and rooted not stuck but rooted in the sense of what did i do to be punished so badly yeah that's the first thing you have to acknowledge right it's like yes. a it's not you but it's hard that's hard it's not you it's <laughs> and it's very hard and, because yeah my father goes through that all the time i i yeah, it's like, i I mean, my father grew up in a childhood, like, due to the Vietnam War. I mean, his mom died at a young age. Um, he had to serve in the Vietnam War. And then once he, um, once he was able to gain skills that, was, that made him useful as a part of the Army, he was sent to Cam live in Cambodia for a few mm -hmm. years, which obviously led, which uh, he had to experience the Khmer Rouge later on. So to hear what he had to go through and... 45 years later very much uh struggling with his past wondering what it what did i do wrong how did i uh get to this point what why wasn't it um why was i treated this unfairly and that's a question that i can never answer to him because yeah. he didn't deserve any of it and uh, and most folks who had experienced it certainly did not uh, deserve any of those experiences. So it's, it's an often a question that I have heard. Mm -hmm. And it's a question that we get stuck on. And one that doesn't give answers, but how do we take that question to give them the healing and the, the love and the empathy and, and a way for them to make, find a level of peace? Yeah. Um, one of the things I've been curious about um, which I'm uh, low key, high key, <laughs> medium key, looking at through the Lotus Rising Theater is um, how we describe um, our hero's journey, the stories that we tell ourselves. And the Western theater and the Western storytelling has the very specific hero's journey arc. I think it was Joseph Campbell. <laughs> I want to say Joseph Campbell, who created this arc and every single movie that you see, Star Wars, um, uh, Wizard of Oz, goes by this arc. Like you, you have innocence and you go through these trials and you come out the other end, like knowing so much more and feeling brave and da 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 da. da. You're the hero. The end. What I've learned is Southeast Asian storytelling is completely different. Southeast Asian hero's journey um, never really. Um, where the Western hero's journey wants to combat external obstacles. Like I'm gonna, this, here's this challenge and you're gonna see me act it out, right? And I'm, I'm going to overcome it and yay, I'm the hero. Southeast Asian storytelling wants to see the hero be as calm as possible through all these external obstacles. And so why we see so much internal conflict conflict is because in order for us to see ourselves as heroes we do not react we respond mm. and we respond with community backing we respond because we have worked with um our families to come up with an answer as opposed to i'm going to go set out on this journey and do the damn thing and win the day mm. and so when we think about our family being heroes because they are <laughs> they are heroes yeah it's a, a, a kind of how do we reframe what we know as a Western narrative of becoming a hero and putting it in the in their terms? How do you, how do we as family support you in the everyday decisions that you've made? You woke up this morning, 
awesome. Hey, come with me and do these things. You know, it is a, it is more about family and community support and recognizing that in quieter ways than it is, hey, we're going to applaud you out loud and give you a trophy. Mm. And so those are the subtle differences that I think could be the root of why, um, why mental health services have not worked, even if they were accessible. Yeah, and it's also through a Western lens, clearly. And mm-hmm. the fact that when we look at the Western uh, complicitness in destruction and colonization of, of um, black and brown uh, lands, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. So the way that mental health is done is definitely does not take into account of the history and also the the level of distrust that our community has of Western practices of mental health. And also the fact that there's no connection to there's their no own connection. history at all. Mm-hmm. So uh, when we are seeing more Khmer Southeast Asian folks, for example, going into these professions, um, it is a hope that we start to utilize uh, more of our own cultural knowledge and being able to to do the work to understand those roots that are still embedded through our ancestors who have passed uh, this this legacy down. And when you deal with this level of trauma, how does one uh, make that connection? How does one start to help uh, older survivors heal? Not just elders, but generation folks, millennials like us, even though we may not have gone through that, but we're still going through the impact of their own struggles. And that has affected our own relationship with our families as a result. And, and they say that it takes about six generations to go through that cycle to, to complete the cycle of intergenerational trauma, un, unless there is another trauma that's uh, that just that would happen, which to be honest with you, I think it goes way beyond six generations because yeah. there's going to be trauma history repeating itself in that period, in that uh, however long it takes, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm loving that you brought up the generational healing and trauma, and I think it's seven because I was like, wait, the, the Latinx community believes in seven generations too, and the indigenous Native American community believes in seven generations too. I'm like, so do the Kamai. Mm. <laughs> and it, there's something so beautiful in that interconnectedness of, of our generations and understanding that I don't know what the number seven means for everyone, but for all these people that have gone through so much that we have similar theories. And for some reason we have never like, it's not like we ever grew up together, (laughs) you know, it's, it's this kind of beautiful. um, I don't know. It's this beautiful thread that connects us all in a way. Yeah. Uh, We had talked about families and communities and I wanted to talk about your family and how you arrived to uh, the Bayou uh, and (laughs) how did that all come about? Uh, for your family, uh, for your mom specifically, because I know that uh, your mom came to the U.S. And who did she, co- did she come in on her own or was she with her other family members? Yeah, so um, my mom came with the, uh, I believe, a third wave. Um, there were four waves of refugees coming in. Mom came in with the third wave. 
and her family, we were lucky. And I, I use that term, like relatively speaking. Um, uh, and the fact that we only, as far as her immediate family, she only lost her, uh, one of her older brothers. Mm. Um, we also, we had extended family members that were lost as well, but, um, in our family, we were pretty, um, intact, if you will. Um, so they came over and were actually, uh, the airplane landed in Huntsville, Alabama. Mm. We're still the core of our, um, family still resides. Um, and so Huntsville is the place of NASA, home of NASA, right? Yeah. It's the home, like it's the number one place for PhDs in the world, I think, or something nerdy <laughs> like that. They have a really great slingshot ride. Ever <laughs> go? Um, but yeah, the, and Huntsville for me growing up was the epicenter or the place where when we had family reunions, that's where we would go. Um, so my dad was working in um, Nashville at the time with the Catholic um, Refugee Services. And for the listeners out there, just to make sure I'm very clear, my dad is white, or in Kamai we call it Saw. <laughs> He's Saw. And my mom is Kamai. Um, my dad met my mom through um, a traditional Kamai matchmaker that my dad met in Nashville. <laughs> <laughs> and so they were not um uh, my dad wasn't supposed to meet my mom can I tell the story I, I love yeah. the story Go like, ahead, please do. Of the story. um so my dad hires this Kamai traditional matchmaker because he loved the community so much like he was really into it and he's like you know what I think I love this community so much that I want to marry into this community he did he did the damn thing he hired a matchmaker and they went traveling like every time like a new family was in town i guess they went to go check them out and um so my family i hope it's not like a when i first think about it like i hope it's not a pocahontas thing oh god i mean maybe i mean disney pocahontas or like (laughs) disney yeah the disney pocahontas let me go see some new land um well anyway my dad was supposed to meet my mom's cousins Mm -hmm. and um so he goes to Huntsville and the family's there and my dad meets my mom's cousins and he's not really feeling it they're not really feeling it all the things and but as we combine people do we show the folks that we love them including guests with food so um my mom was the one cooking the lunch and my, my dad, I'm simplifying this. And my dad was like, um, what's her story? What's she about? What's going on? She looks cool. And my uh, mom was like, what is going on? And my family's like, no, 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 no. You can't, you, no, no, no. Uh, she's a widow. And so the, my mom's story is her first husband actually died from sickness in the Khmer jungle right before oh. they were about to enter the Thai refugee camps. Oh my goodness. So he died the night before and did not make it. Oh my goodness. So, oh. yeah. So, so my mom, um, yeah. So she was a widow in a Khmer tradition. You don't remarry. That's like, you're, you're one and done. <laughs> that no. is your, your person for life. Yeah. Um, so she was kind of like, what is going on? Why are people talking about me? And the translator, it was translated back to her, like, dad was interested. And she said, and she said, you know what? Um, first off, I'm in America now, so I'll do whatever I want. <laughs> secondly, secondly, I wouldn't want to be with him anyway. He looks like a goat. 
he had it was the 80s he had like the the goatee thing happening and he took note of that went home to nashville shaved up came back a week later <laughs> Ta-da. Ta-da, new man new goal so they they dated for about six months and um and my grandparents went on all the dates is what I understood <laughs> kept a healthy distance and um eventually they got married and they had a traditional Cambodian wedding in Huntsville Alabama which the neighborhood had never seen before and they're kind of freaking out because it's like white bread Huntsville and they're like why is there people with drums and my clothing coming down the street to this house what is happening <laughs> and so it was kind of the first honestly the first celebration that my family could have in America was my parents' wedding. (laughs) So, um, so eventually, um, dad got another job with, um, uh, as, and I, am not remembering the title correctly, but as the, it's like some sort of ambassador liaison, liaison sounds more accurate, um, for the United Nations, um, refugee, uh, commission. And it was in Balabatri, Alabama, because so many Southeast Asians were moving to the coast because it looked like home to them. They could, the Vietnamese especially, could um, pick up their their shrimping business or fishing businesses because they knew the water so well. Yes. And and what Southeast Asians were looking for, from what I understand, is once they were um, they were pretty much spread all over the United States in rural areas to not um, quote unquote, and I read this in a military document, to not burden the economics of a certain city or town. So if you can imagine being dispersed in a, uh, because of genocide and civil war and then doing it again in the refugee camp, and if you were in the first wave of refugees, you got dispersed again in Guam, <laughs> then you come to a military base or just dropped off in the middle of nowhere. And so you were left off in the middle of nowhere and in a rural area and try to do your best to just find an area that looked like home. Hmm. Um, so, so my mom is a river woman. Um, she grew up 45 minutes away from Phnom Penh and, and literally grew up on the river. Um, Oh, who's river? I can't remember right now, but it's okay. Um, so being on the bayou was just kind of going back into old practices. And we were near um, so many Vietnamese and Lao and other Khmer, especially Khmer, who were just picking up where they kind of left off. So in a way, it was a, a, a beautiful kind of relief to be with people who looked like you and spoke mm-hmm. like you and cooked like you. But at the same time, being in Baila Battery, and this is why my dad was there, was because these um, coastal um, towns had been white communities, white seafood industry. And there was massive tension on the Gulf Coast regarding um, uh, uh, warring, if you will, seafood um, uh, methods and who was bringing in money and who wasn't. Before the Southeast Asians came to Balabatri, um, that town had kind of taken a hit. Mm. Uh, they were not doing as well as they had in the past. It was a, a resort town back in like the early um, 20th century. Yeah, because yeah. you also had Dauphin Island, which is an attraction yeah. there. Uh, yeah. I used to spend my summers 
hanging out there as a kid. And um, what I can say uh, that really drew my grandparents and part of my mom's family to the bayou was, again, as you mentioned, shrimping, the fishing industry. I mean, my grandfather uh, on my mom's side knew how to uh, uh, make a boat. And uh, he actually had his family escape to um, his boat that he created, that he made himself. Um, and he knew how to fish. He was very mm -hmm. skilled at it. Uh, so, and also the warm weather. The warm weather clearly was an attraction because um, my mom at that point had met my dad and they were staying put in uh, near the Chicagoland area. And then some of my family members had lived down to near Boston. Uh, so, but yeah, but for a lot of uh, elders, especially elders, uh, they saw places like the South as as a as a better attraction and to be with their own community members mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah it was like this building of co-ethnic communities truly you know it's fine if you couldn't find your family you made family with the neighbors that you had wow that's that's very poignant yeah. um that's very poignant uh, and looking uh looking back in those in that period of time uh the kkk uh, white supremacy was very much it's still rampant now but yeah <laughs> but, and, but giving in context back in the 70s uh early 80s it wasn't that long like 10 years uh 10 years before 75 it was the civil rights act uh, it was the immigration uh, bill that allowed mm -hmm. for refugees like our families to be here um but in the deep south it was so entrenched um uh, and I, I always wondered what living there must have been like because there were threats clearly yeah. uh, against our communities yeah and you know i think every part of america has a very distinct style of racism yes <laughs> um the the deep south was specifically with alabama at least when i was alive and living there um to put this into context and i'm gonna let let us have like a little pregnant pause about it jeff sessions was the lieutenant governor of Alabama during the, early, the 1980s and early 90s. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about the KKK, of course, it's not them putting on hoods anymore. No. <laughs> you know, it, it is. Um, they become police officers. They become, they become police officers. Um, exactly. They, they work in they government. Go into they work. Industries. Yeah, all the things. <laughs> and, and it was, um, whew, how do I even start with this? I am a deep believer that um, local politics affects us more than national politics. And I, I can speak to that because as a child, I remember distinctly um, having an all-white city council in Balabatri. And I remember attending city council with my dad being the voice of the Southeast Asian communities who would not show up to places where there were police. Mm -hmm. Like you, you, it's not like it was a big place to live. Like it's one bridge you're on, you're off. That's it. No. And you know, police were figuring out how to terrorize um, in the Southeast Asian community, you know, like, and for us, it's, normal when we have family gatherings to leave all our shoes outside on the porch and it's normal for us to have card games going on well 
in America, that's called gambling. <laughs> and, <laughs> and if a police were driving by in a Southeast Asian neighborhood and saw that there were a lot of shoes on a porch, that was enough for him to knock on the door and say, what are you doing? Oh, you're gambling? Jail time. Mm. It's illegal. And it was kind of like these taking away of and not understanding that this is how we bond as a community. This is, there was no one really there trying to explain gambling is illegal because the state cannot collect taxes on these things. Um, So it was um, things like, uh, obviously with the shrimp boats, um, things, I'm trying to remember specifically, like having Vietnamese shrimp boats destroyed, Mm. cutting nuts. Um, making sure that you weren't told the right information. Did you get your license? Oh, why not? <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it was this having to navigate xenophobia and uh, lasting effects of the Vietnam War and attitudes about the Vietnam War to people who really kind of had nothing to do with it. <laughs> um, and um but having to be like the whipping post for so many emotions and built up anger for for um for complete misunderstanding and truly ignorance about what happened in southeast asia um as a child growing up um and this is where i'm going to get into my biracialness and I still, this is something I'm still having to work through with is even though I walk out in the world as a brown girl, I have to recognize that a lot of my privilege came from my white father. And so when I, as a little girl, were walking around with my white father, of course, I'm not going to have a lot of things said to me directly, you know, but my, my friends, with their Kamai families walking around, hell yeah, they're going to get shit said to them, mm-hmm. you know? So um, that's something where like, I've heard things, I heard uh, things happening to my friends and my neighbors through my dad, but they never happened to me. Mm. And so here comes this, for me specifically, the space of privilege, but not privilege. <laughs> with that said, uh, did, did that cause resentment among your Kamai classmates or? Oh, for sure. When they for start sure. seeing that you're getting treated differently uh, versus how they're being treated. Oh, definitely. I, I remember, and this is something we talked about. Um, I remember in, in retrospect when I became a model minority and that was in the first grade that my teacher was um, Mrs. Montgomery <laughs> was her name. And she was very kind and very nice. And, but because of my father's position and because I wasn't quote unquote, like the other Asian kids. And I, and I hear, heard this a lot growing up. You're not like those Asian kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> um, um, but I was given like preferential treatment. And now I think about it, it's, it was tokenism. Mm-hmm. Um, we got this, um, Alba Elementary was the school there. 
from this is the first grade, um, we were donated um, a computer lab inside of a, um, a caboose. So, so this part of a train is, and it's still there. Um, this caboose became our first computer lab and there was a whole ceremony about it, right? And I was asked by my teacher because I spoke so well and I am so cute to say, to be the person to say the Pledge of Allegiance in front of the student body. And of course I was super proud about it, but I didn't realize the effect of it. Like I wasn't an adult obviously, but to be a mostly white audience looking at a well-spoken brown girl (laughs) where so many um, Southeast Asians had just come in who can repeat the Pledge of Allegiance with pride <laughs> in front of the new computer lab. I mean, there are so many levels of model minority that started with that one ask wow. that it's like, oh, I see. I see from that point on as an adult how I was used within educational systems in the community mm-hmm. to be the well spoken brown girl so the other Southeast Asians can look up to her. Uh, you know what? You're, you're really opening up something that I have never talked about. And I, I'm going to tell you this because and I'm going to tell everyone this now. Uh, when I was growing up as a five-year-old, I was very mute. I was terrified to talk in front of white classmates. I was horrified and I would cry constantly uh, anytime any kids got near me. But I think like around third grade, you know, I was this bookworm. I I took comfort in books and I was reading encyclopedias. And for some reason, I don't know how, what drew me in, but I started getting into the U.S. presidents. I started to recite the U.S. presidents, the vice presidents, which I can't do anymore. I would love to hear first that. Wives, the first wives. <laughs> and I'm not going to do that demonstration now because that's <laughs> certainly not going to do that now at this time. Um, but you talk about this whole tokenism, the model minority. I was one of, I, I don't know how many Asian students there were. There were very few. And I was getting propped up by my own school. And I love my teachers, don't get me wrong. Uh, but it was interesting looking back that I was this model minority, this kid who overcame not speaking English to speaking English mm-hmm. to, you know, being this bookworm, this non-threatening kid and who could literally just recite the U.S. president and how, what a, what a great story was that. I was actually in the, uh, in the uh, school news, in the uh, local newspaper at that time. Uh, but I think as I got older, there was resentment among my white peers, but there was also um, a disconnect that I was having with my dad's friends, uh, uh, my peer, my own like-minded peer. Well, let me rewind that back. Uh, my Khmer Vietnamese peers from my dad's friends side of the family and I saw that disconnecting happening very quickly so I felt like Mm -hmm. I was in this otherness right that you had experienced you know here you are uh, reciting the Pledge of Allegiance you speak great English you're lighter than a lot of your 
uh, Khmer or Southeast Asian peers. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you also struggle to be accepted by white peers as well because you're not them. I'm not them and I was also, you know, it was hard for me to be accepted by my brown peers. I don't remember, like, I literally did not truly care about being friends with my white peers because I didn't see them after school. You know, I had a huge crush on Jonathan DuPont and he was a white guy, but that was like the extent DuPont. of it. <laughs> Jonathan DuPont. I remember his name um, very well. But like after school, who I kicked it with were my Khmer girlfriends. But I, I also remember feeling pained. I, like, it's weird what we remember at a, at a young age that still affects us. Now. It's like, I remember learning the word ignore mm. at, um, after school, at our, our after school activities at the preschool, wow. which was across the street. And, and it was my Khmer friends, so who I thought at the time were my friends. I hope they're still my friends. Um, but I remember them saying, just ignore her. And I literally asked in my pigtails, what's ignore? Mm. And there was silence. And then I remember going, wow, mm. I am literally being shut out by the people I thought would understand me the most. Even at that young age, I remember being literally silenced out of the game of life. That's the irony, right? We were it literally is. playing the game of life. And I was told, I was... Um, not told, but I was literally shut out. Mm. And from that moment on, I'm like, okay, what am I doing wrong? Why am I being treated like this? Why, 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 why? And I still don't have the answers now, but the only thing I can point back to is because of my bi biracialness of never being enough over here or good enough over there, or, you know, where, where do I belong? Was this so where can I be accepted? Was this a conversation that you had with your parents uh, growing up? Um, no, I don't. It, and here's why we, we didn't really, um, we didn't really, and we still kind of don't, but we're, we're getting better. Uh, we never really talked about emotions a lot or our internal emotional life. And I think that has a lot to do with both my dad's PTSD of being in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. um, he was a Marine in Vietnam. And my mom's PTSD for obviously being in the genocide. So, so in a PTSD, and again, I'm oversimplifying a, a something, but if you show too much emotion, that's being too reactionary and being reactionary can get you killed. Mm. So being a very creative child and very like curious and uh, wanting to emote so much, I don't think they knew how to work with me mm. in that sense. Um, but they did. My dad made sure that even at a young age, I had access to the art. So uh, my first play was at four years old in Balabatri. <laughs> was, I mean, it's totally problematic now. This musical is very problematic now. Um, the King and I. Oh, goodness. You know? <laughs> but, but at that time, I know, like, sigh. Problem, <laughs> problematic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> but truly if you think about it at the time like I don't know where this theater company came in but they were like really we're doing a play and we're like what is a play <laughs> we're shrimping right now but it, in a way it did bring our communities together the white community and Southeast Asian community together because we needed costumes well who can make those 
well, the Southeast Asian women who had learned how to sew in refugee camps, you know, who can play these children? Oh, me and my friends can play these children. You know, so it was, a, it was being able to create with a community and have a common goal was for me, like, I don't know, it's like I could take a big, deep breath. I go, ah, this is where I can at least play another character that's not me, and we're doing it all together. Mm-hmm. And so almost like a small little break, but, um, but yeah, I think I went off tangent. But <laughs> No, um, <laughs> and, and also when you talk about uh, like the struggles that you had to deal with um, growing up in schools, uh, mm-hmm. what was your relationship like with your parents as you got older uh, did they understand the racial dynamics of you being mixed because I know uh, you you had alluded to you know obviously them not being able to show uh, the emotions because of their own PTSD and 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 their own trauma that they were still obviously living through and how how do you handle a screaming seven-year-old when you internally are screaming yourself you know (laughs) it's um yeah I think education is such a big deal in my family it is truly the uh, a, a huge deal um my mom I'm gonna take it back to my mom real quick um ma is what I call her um my dad has an equivalent of um, a PhD. It's an EDD in education, highly educated. He's still collecting um, degrees like it's freaking LaCroix sodas. Like he's just collecting them all. (laughs) (laughs) My mom, on the other hand, has a Western equivalent to a second grade education. Mm. So there is a huge gap there between my two parents who love each other so, so much. But we know in Western society, when we tend to look for a partner, the first, one of the first three things that you look for is someone who is as educated as you are, if not smarter. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and the beauty about my mom is that she is brilliant, like creatively brilliant. You can't teach this stuff. Mm -hmm. And so like she could... I remember going out into like waiting for the bus stop and her picking up like certain types of weeds, give her three minutes and it's a puppet. She turned it into a puppet. You know? oh, when, I, when I was thinking of weeds, I was thinking of something else. Oh, no, no. That's pretty, that's pretty badass. It's called Gontana <laughs> Secantra. Sorry, I had to throw that in there. I was like, just want to clarify. Oh, God. <laughs> Not the gancha bangdi, um, <laughs> but no, like like um, cattail weeds and stuff. Um, and she can look at like I remember, her, and this is a joke in the Southeast Asian community, but I think it's also very very true. Like a lot of us learned English by watching Wheel of Fortune <laughs> because of the repetition of letters. I'm not. You're not wrong. You're not wrong because I used to watch wrong. Wheel of Fortune. I used to watch Wheel of Fortune with my brothers and my dad. Uh, like right after dinner and before I would have to do homework. Yeah. Well, Fortune was on. It's on. Like, you're not missing it. That's your English lesson of the day. (laughs) Yeah, it was 6.30 p.m. Central Standard Time. That's right. What's Vanna wearing today? Let's what? (laughs) But, like, that goes back to my mom who could see um, what Vanna White was wearing. Imagine the pattern in her head. Pick up some cloth at the freaking Walmart that we went to, like, every two weeks. (laughs) And she would go home and recreate it from her mm-hmm. imagination. 
so when we talk, when I say education, I don't mean just what we think of school and higher ed, the full holistic education of creativity that can't be taught, but it can be practiced every day. The brilliance of resourcefulness mixed with an education of a traditional education. So one of the things that my mom did when we lived in the bayou was after school, she would take me and my sisters to the library mm. every single day because the library was a block from the, the Shambo Avenue. <laughs> and, and I would like read children's books because of the colors and the, the wonderful fairy tales and blah, 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 blah. She literally, this woman, <laughs> she literally walked around in this log cabin library five foot nothing, maybe 97 pounds, found the biggest damn book in the library, plopped it down in front of me, and she says, Simon, read this. And I will never forget it. It was like the history of the world, um, the history of the world by, uh, according to Christopher Columbus. Oh. And I'm like, <laughs> the fuck? <laughs> wow. So she was the one What kind of tortured... You poor thing. You, you were I, subjected I, to I that. Like, Horrible. Who wants me to read about this Torture. Christopher Columbus? Who the huh. hell is this guy? <laughs> I think we're still asking that same question. Other than the fact that we know who he is, he's a uh, murderous uh, failure. Is oh, yeah, a murderous failure is what he shall always be remembered as. But it didn't matter to my mom because she couldn't read the thing. She just knew it was the biggest book in the library and that her daughter by, by God or by Buddha will finish this book. <laughs> and, so, and so she was always the one who kind of pushed me a little bit harder. Like, if you can do this, what else can you do? And how can you do it differently? And how can you do it with, um, here's a pencil and a pen. How do you draw it out? My father, on the other hand, he was very much into making sure that I had developed um, critical thinking at a very young age. So, so Sunday mornings, Louis would, um, he would wake me up and in the bayou and it's like very warm and muggy. We would walk to the Circle K <laughs> and pick up like coffee and danishes and come back and we would watch together in our small single wide trailer um, like CBS Sunday morning and then all the talking political heads after that, he would get a newspaper and make sure that I read certain articles to understand what the world was going through. And we would talk about it. That was, that's our relationship. My, and we still wow. do that to this day. What is happening in the world? Why is it happening? What is the history? What can we do better? Mm. And so that's my education. And so when um, I decided to go to college, um, my dad basically said, you got the Marine Corps, Mississippi State, which one do you choose? I'm like, well, we just went to war with Iraq. So I think I'm going to go to Mississippi State. <laughs> <So> <laughs> and um, I went to Mississippi State on music scholarships, I, uh, music scholarships of playing the flute and choir. And I worked really hard and, um, and at first I was a history major because the goal was, even though I love the arts, the goal was for me to be a lawyer, mm. go into um, to human rights law to like really just F up the system, right? <laughs> I'm just yeah. gonna do the damn thing. But then it was just like, that was not my calling. And I switched my major to communication theater 
I didn't tell my parents, <laughs> mm. but, um, and I was like, I'm just not going to tell them until graduation and for sure I will have a job and then they won't be able to say anything about it. Can you imagine <laughs> that, that graduation song coming up and it's like, oh, you know, by the way, as you're taking these photo ops, uh, I majored in such and such. I can imagine the, the shock of your parents are like, um, that's not what she's majoring in. Here's what you missed the last four years of my life and all these shows. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for coming so, no so my history um advisor actually ratted me out to my dad wow <laughs> and he was uh, we were in the car and he's like simone is there anything you would like to tell me and then yeah it's a great saturday man it's cool he's like about your major mm. what about my major so that it, that's how it came out and he literally like he took this breath my mom was driving, by the way, oh. my, and and she's not the best driver. I mean, <laughs> but my dad, he just took this breath. He goes, did I do this to you? Am I the reason why you, <laughs> you decided to switch careers? I'm Dang. like, are you really going back to when we were, I was four years old and you had me audition for The King and I? Really? <laughs> 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 but, um, but they are so excited for where I am right now because yeah. they've seen that that theater has truly been uh, God so much for me has given me so much, and they see how much I'm doing with communities with it. And I don't think neither did I at that time. I guess I didn't know that this is where I would be using theater to to help so many communities build their own stories, hmm. and that is what I think I'm here to do on this earth yeah. and I love it so so much and I'm so grateful that is just incredible and uh when you were going after graduation were you looking to live in other cities like that are very art friendly like in New York Chicago like, or in the <laughs> west coast like any oh my other God. didn't you know I <laughs> I saved up and everything. I moved to New York City, but then I got an internship in Kentucky. <laughs> so I was, I was just very curious, like what led uh, your path into Arkansas and what is it about Arkansas? And I think you've alluded to it earlier. We'll, you know, circle back into uh, Northwest Arkansas and specifically yeah. Fayetteville. But what is it about that, um, that community that really drew you in as far as being an artist in, in, in the theater community there? Because most people who hear Fayetteville <laughs> won't even, well, most people won't even know where Fayetteville is. Yeah, like right? Fayetteville, North Carolina? No. You know, I mean, the only thing I knew about Arkansas before I talked to you was Little Rock. And I've only driven past Arkansas, like coming back, you know, home from Alabama to uh, Chicago. So, uh, but yeah, when people hear of Arkansas you don't think of art uh, right away no and it's really um it's really kind of a surprising little place I'll, I'll tell you that I mean growing up in the south um and definitely uh being a person who loves theater and performance and the arts in general it was it has been an all and it continues to be um an isolated place for Asian American artists I will make that very clear um it i literally did not meet another professional asian american theater artist until two years ago mm -hmm. um and that was 
revolutionary for me because I, I thought I had, I thought I was going crazy in my industry. Like here I am in the South trying to do great things in leadership. Why is white, white led institutions shutting me down? They hired me for this. What's going on? Scream. <laughs> and, and so I, I, there are a lot of barriers that I still face to this day, though I am succeeding in ways that I can't even like imagine. Um, so Northwest Arkansas, um, about 10 years ago, um, the Walton Family Foundation, um, specifically Alice Walton, created Crystal Bridges in Bentonville. And like I said earlier, Bentonville is the headquarters of Walmart. So there was this, um, Crystal Bridges was built as a destination for um, community to see the arts. It is a place that is massive and beautiful and completely free to the public. And they're going through a lot of changes right now as far as understanding the communities that also live in Northwest Arkansas. So there's, there's in this area, you're starting to see a lot more diversity, equity, and inclusion happening, whether they're doing it right or not. That's a completely different conversation mm -hmm. um, altogether. But there is a focus now of um, growing the art economy. I moved here about four years ago because my sister lives in Oh, She said, you know what, there's like, I was frustrated with Mississippi and trying to do the theater that I wanted to do and not getting under, like people not understanding it or um, not really wanting to see a brown woman in leadership speak the truth, <laughs> to be quite honest. Um, and get paid for it. Um, so she suggested that I come to Northwest Arkansas. I, I totally stepped away from my graduate program. I stepped away from my my career there, um, working at Mississippi State. And I, uh, and I came out here and I worked um, with a children's theater. And then I worked with an, um, a social practice theater. And now I am striking it out on my own. Um, because every single time that I, I have worked with communities, whether it has been um, youth or veterans or um, um, other brown communities, I've always in those institutions have been like, what about my Southeast Asian community? And I've always gotten the excuse of, oh, not yet. And mm -hmm. I would counter with, well, it's very, very strange that I'm working with all these marginalized communities, but I can't even, I can't even get you to agree with me that Asian communities need to be seen. Mm. And literally I was in a workshop where a woman who was facilitating it um, named every race that she thought was in South Fayetteville. And then I asked, excuse me, um, where are the, what about the Asian community? She's like, oh, when I think of South Fayetteville, I don't think of them. And literally there was two Asian women in that room. <laughs> So, so this is the kind of, um, oh goodness, the kind of things that I am trying to make space for when, when we talk about progression and we talk about in inclusion of brown and black communities in Northwest Arkansas, we, I am doing the best that I can to make sure that Asian representation is at the table and that we are not forgotten because A, it's national amnesia that Asian Americans are forgotten, number one. Number two is that as Southeast Asian American in Northwest Arkansas, where 50,000 Southeast Asians came through this dang state in 1975, yet we're still not being included at the table. Why? You literally brought us to this state. Well, not me specifically, but my community. 
and you leave us high and dry. Um, for me in my space now that I have been um, decided not to be with an institution, I've been able to flex that voice a lot stronger to where people are paying attention now. What can you say about the Southeast Asian community in Fayetteville, Northwest Arkansas? I will say that it is isolated. And I mean, <clears throat> it is isolated in the sense that Hmm, I want to make sure I'm saying this well, because I had a conversation about this at a rehearsal earlier. We know, we as Southeast Asians know that we exist, but we have lived in our small little pockets. And I think that has a lot to do with self-preservation. I also think that has a lot to do with please don't harm us again. Mm -hmm. I think that has a lot to do with being forced out into the rural side to not be dealt with. And what I'm trying to understand or make space for is where are those places that those of us, especially third generation, who are being much more vocal, who are younger, who want mm -hmm. space, where can I find that space to plug us in? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a delicate balance, um, especially in Washington County where I live in, where we, this county is one of three counties that participates in 287G. Um, are you from, you're from, <laughs> uh, we had talked about the 287G, so I was wondering if you can uh, elaborate what uh, that means. Yeah, I would love to. <laughs> so 287G is a national program in which United States counties, sheriff's offices can participate, can choose to participate in, they don't have to, they can choose to, that is a direct connection with ICE. So Washington County, Benton County, those are the two counties in Northwest Arkansas. And I believe Polanski County, which is not in Northwest Arkansas, the three counties on the books who allow ICE to have a space in the Washington, uh, the county jail. And so if um, a person who is undocumented <clears throat> is, is um, caught anywhere within Washington County, they run to see, uh, they run the records to see if they are documented. If they are not documented, they are sent straight to Washington County Jail and held under ICE. Mm -hmm. um, and the next move after that, <clears throat> excuse me, is to send them to um, uh, LaSalle um, Prison um, in Louisiana, where they face an immigration judge. Um, to be essentially deported back to their um, um, quote-unquote home countries. Mm. Um, so what we are, what I'm looking at and what others are looking at, especially our Latinx communities, is why, number one, why do two Northwest Arkansas counties participate in 287G when we know they don't have to, but also knowing that we have the highest concentration of um, of Marshallese, we have the highest number of Marshallese outside the Marshall Islands and outside mm. of Hawaii, located in Washington County. We also have a high number of um, Lao and Hmong communities here in Washington Benton counties. <laughs> we also obviously have a large Latinx community here in um, um, Washington County specifically. So um, we're seeing um, what I would consider um, uh, I consider this, and for for myself and my communities, um, an extension of the secret war <laughs> in Cambodia, 
in the secret mm-hmm. war in Laos, <laughs> in the secret mm-hmm. war um, against um, uh, folks who agreed to be allies to the U.S. and are now not being taken care of. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm working as hard as I can to um, be a resource to a lot of our Latinx youth, as particularly a group called El Equipo um, de Defensa al Inmigrante, who are doing amazing, beautiful things to do um, civil disobedience, to draw attention that we don't need 28-7G in our area. It does nothing but break our families apart and cause further damage that we don't need. As an artist, and I know that you've been working with youth Mm -hmm. in in the theater spaces, especially to integrate uh, Southeast Asians, Asians, and also with uh, Latinx and Black communities um, in those spaces. But when you hear about the ICE raids, they're accelerating. Um, they are targeting not only uh, undocumented Latinx folks, but also with Southeast Asian folks who are not undocumented, but have had a previous criminal record mm-hmm. uh, years ago and are now facing orders of deportation. How do you practice your art safely in in those spaces, considering that there's so much fear going on. And especially when you're in a community that can be very detrimental, especially the art that you practice that mm-hmm. uh, uplifts um, the uh, marginalized communities, but at the same time, knowing that art is always seen as a threat, as we all know, going back to our uh, your mom's history or our parents' mm-hmm. history. How do you practice that safely? And how do you continue to navigate that, especially when you're dealing with the deportations that are putting our communities, all of our communities in fear and isolation? Sure. And, and just in case your, your wonderful listeners don't know, um, 90% of artists were uh, murdered um, in the Khmer Rouge or Khmer Rouge um, genocide um, in 1975-1979 is what they're estimating is 90%. So I take art personally. (laughs) I take it politically. I take it as an act of resistance. I take it as um, uh, my duty um, to present the truth as much as possible, but knowing that, that truths are buried and complicated and um, what I don't want is truth to be silenced. I want, I don't want art to be silenced. Um, but I'm also not going to, um, to take it back to the Western hero versus the Southeast Asian hero. I am not, to, in order for me to walk in integrity and talk in integrity, I cannot make those calls for communities as far as performances. So part of my methodology in Lotus Rising Theater's um, agreement is that every time that we have a performance and we will have performances in the fall, they will be um, at Southeast Asian centered locations, mm-hmm. but who, whatever community is there, they get to make the call on who gets to attend these performances and how these performances get to be seen period, the end. That is their space. That is how what we can do to provide um, some sort of uh, restorative justice to how to claim themselves as heroes, right? Mm -hmm. So even though I'm presenting these tools and I'm gathering these things, 
I'm not going in and saying, boom, this is theater, the end, because that's a bit of a colonization of theater, let's be real. Um, we're going to say brown and black communities through the arts. No, they already have arts. They also already have spaces. It is not my intention to want to go in there and, and just say, this is how we're doing it. No, we're going to work with you to, to understand what is safe for you. Um, the last week, um, the work has gotten a little bit harder um, due to, um, the, I don't even say his name, let's just call him 45. So <laughs> due to 45, um, basically blackmailing um, Laos. And, um, um, and now 28.7G and ICE will be looking at the Lao and Hmong communities as opposed to the Khmer and Vietnamese communities. Um, so this is knowing that Lao and Hmong and Vietnamese are our highest numbers of Southeast Asians here in Northwest Arkansas. Um, that is not a risk I am willing to take. So if that means that we work in secret, that means we work in secret and I have no problem with that. Um, we, I personally, I personally, um, I'm going to be finding other ways in order to, uh, have presence of security around, um, around sites, um, that do not involve police. Mm. So we've got to, we got to think creatively on how to best, um, give the most power to vulnerable communities, but also protect them in the way they want to be protected. Mm. Um, so we're doing theater a little bit differently. <laughs> what can you say, like some of the recent works, like in the, the little theater that you have seen that have uh, been produced, that have been uh, put together by uh, community folks? Like what, uh, what plays, what uh, performances have, can you offer? Can you um, share from Lotus Rising specifically? Yes. Okay, so Lotus Rising, just to be just to be super transparent, <laughs> oh, go ahead. Our, we're still in research phase and we're collecting narratives now. So our first performances won't be until the fall. So this is like a brand new baby. But oh. me specifically, like um, oh, when I've worked with communities in the past, I've worked with the um, VA. Um, that's their, our, we have a veterans um, regional healthcare system here. Um, I've worked with the Marshallese youth and I've worked with Latinx immigrant poultry workers. So each of those communities wanted to ha uh, do their performances completely differently. So like with the Latinx immigrant poultry workers, they were all women and it was part of that organization's design. Um, it was Workers Justice Center, which is no longer in existence, but they put their performance together in addition to Dia de los Muertos. And so how they wanted to do Dia de los Muertos was a protest, truly a protest about um, their horrible working conditions at Tyson. Mm, yeah. Like, but also to talk about immigration and how we're, how like, not we, but their community is literally dying in detention centers mm. and at borders and all these horrible things. But specifically in Washington County, holding Tyson and our state legislators accountable for horrible working conditions to feed the nation, mm. you know, so they, they, they work together after like 12 to 14 hours working at, a, 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 um, Tyson, um, 
they, um, oh, we can't name it Tyson, <laughs> but anyway, um, poultry workers, <laughs> um, poultry farm that I don't know is out there, but, uh, but they created from their own community what they understood art to be, which were beautiful, massively huge um, paper mache um, puppets that you attach to your body and you can like walk down the street with them. And one of them was literally in the shape of um, <laughs> one of our uh, congressmen. <laughs> so, and so that's how they wanted to do it. And I was like, go for it, you know, like, uh, do what you feel is best. Hmm. Um, and they did their protest performance and it was beautiful. Um, the veterans didn't want it to happen at the um, VA because it was, um, they wanted to be integrated within community. So we had it outside of the VA at a place that community could also go to. Mm. Um, the Marshallese youth, we did it in, um, we did it in two different spaces. One of them was the place where all Marshallese understood as a place um, for community resources. So it was like immediate access to that location but we also did it in um a pretty white centric um museum that is trying to do their best and making sure that when they talk about the history of springdale um that it includes the marshallese so it, it depends it truly depends <laughs> yeah uh i know that you've been <clears throat> very active in attending city council hearings and also making your presence known um I think that's probably the best way of saying it because yeah. when you see when you see the deportations really escalating and ICE presence uh, ever more uh, ever more overbearing, mm -hmm. how do you rally other community members to, especially in a place that oftentimes gets ignored on a national level, right? Um, because when we think of the South, it's like it feels like it's a lost at least from the northern perspective it feels like it's a lost cause because it's like oh gosh there's legislators they're all republicans um mm -hmm. there's nothing that we can do there's a very fatalist um perspective that uh, many folks have that it's easy to just uh surrender and yeah. that there's no hope to get anybody out out of um incarceration but I was wondering what your take on it is. And uh, because you, I've seen your Facebook, I've seen your Instagram, and you've been uh, very vigilant in educating folks about what is happening in these parts that we don't often hear and the magnitude of it that is happening. So I wanted to get your uh, perspective on it and what has been your experience like in trying to, um, to, uh, uh, to pressure lawmakers and uh, police officers that, uh, that there are community members that are resisting this action? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, how I see art as part of the resistance, I believe that hope as well, as, as well, and that sounds like a Star Wars line to be quite honest, but I do believe that hope and having hope is so part of, of the long game. Mm -hmm. And I know my mama didn't survive a damn genocide and going through a damn jungle in a Thai refugee camp for me to sit on my ass and not do anything. So <laughs> that's my first thing. Um, the second thing is that when I, I try my best to get behind those who are already doing the work. I have a privilege where I was born in America. I have the privilege of being able to speak on the cuff eloquently, I guess. And I 
have the privilege of if I go to jail, nothing's really going to happen to me. So I work with communities that are really doing the work and saying, hey, how do you want me to show up? How do you want me to leverage my, my voice to amplify the message when no one's hearing yours? And if, if no one's hearing our voices, what, how do we show up next? And I think um, what people forget is, is in, in Northwest Arkansas and pockets of the South is, well, the whole South is the most diverse part of the United States, period. Um, 2010 census said there was an 80% increase of Asian Americans um, in the South. Mm. So it is imperative that for those of us who can speak up and support our brothers and sisters and other folks who are needing our help to do so, but also to recognize that we need to get behind those who are already doing the work, right? Not to take over, not to appropriate, not to just go off and do whatever the hell we want to do. Stand by those who are already doing it. Um, I try to leverage my voice and engagement of conversation every single time I can. If I'm sitting across from someone who I know is an executive director of a really cool arts mob, I ask them like, hey, what's your diversity look like when you have these meetings? Mm. Like, truly, I, I want to know. Yeah. And um, I don't, uh, I, I think just not being scared, and I know and I know, and, and I hear this all the time, Simone, I don't know where to start. Well, courage is a muscle that needs to be practiced every day um, to have those uncomfortable conversations, but to also be curious about what other people may not honestly know or may have information that's not correct and to hold space for them, to, to, to hold space for them to be um, uncomfortable and to be, to feel that they can be uncomfortable around you. And I think that's for me been the best tactic, but when that shit, uh, I'm sorry, this is where I get cussy. Then I'm going to be standing out there in front of an ice bus with my Mississippi state cowbell blocking that bus from entering into the Washington County jail to pick up another person for deportation. Hmm. It's, I think talking can go so far. At some point, talking needs to stop because if they're not listening, then you're not using your, that is energy wasted, truly. So that's why I lean on the arts to get the message across, to create the story, because it's easier to get to the heart of things when you can tell it in a story. Sometimes we want to go straight to the brain and challenge the brain. Listen, we live in an area where our brains are overloaded. We're done. I'm going to go for your heart. Cool. So and if that doesn't work, then I'm going to use my physical body to do whatever is necessary to get your attention. Mm-hmm. Um, so case in point, I really needed a massage at Massage Envy. I'm literally lying naked on a table and woman is going crazy deep tissue and hurting every single muscle in my system. And she goes, what kind of work do you do? I said, oh, I do the arts. <laughs> it's the life of an artist and i'm an artist and she was like yeah i'm not sure like i've never met an artist who has this much issues in their upper body i'm like oh well have you heard of 287 g let's talk about that yeah let's talk about she was like no what is that and 
and I talked about it while I'm naked on a table <laughs> and never met this woman before, but she felt comfortable enough. And I didn't know where she stood politically or on these things, but I told her the stories of what I had experienced in the last week or in the last month or like stories of I've seen of other people doing. And it really, she kind of just stopped at a moment. She goes, wow, this is what that can do to your body. And I said, yeah. Can you we're, not imagine? To, we're not even getting to the mental part of that. We're not even getting into the mental. Exactly right. And it's like trauma lives in the body. And I'm not, again, I'm privileged that I'm privileged that I don't deal with that level of trauma every day. My, my trauma is different. And I, I can no way, I, I cannot even fathom or imagine what black communities go through at all or indigenous communities at all. But it was this moment of I'm carrying this in my body because of what is going on. And I'm not even, I'm not even that close to the issue, if that makes sense. And can you imagine what a body would feel like for a person who is? Mm. And this woman who understood bodies was like, yeah, I can. I'm like, okay. And so that's what I think that that's just my way of being able to do it. I'm not saying my way is the right way or my way is the, the way that everybody should do it. But I know that's what is authentic to me to get the message across. Mm, thank you for sharing. Um, thank you for sharing your experience and thank you so much for um, really shedding light into this important work and what the urgency looks like right now as we speak, especially in uh, parts of America, as we're seeing the um, incarcerations increasing, more communities are becoming terrified. But at the same time, we're also seeing a number of community members fighting back. Mm-hmm. You're seeing more people being in solidarity against these raids and educating our community folks how to protect themselves, to know their rights and and to be there when people's families are being broken apart so I do take encouragement I do take hope in seeing what you and so many Southeast Asian folks are doing right now Um, I you know working on this podcast for the season I've been incredibly blessed to come across folks who are just fearless even though there is inherent even though there's internal fear and insecurities when we're and when they're facing everyday issues that seem to be above their level but then realizing that you know it it all comes from the heart the the genuineness of this work and the compassion and empathy for our own community members that go beyond policy so yeah thank you so much for sharing uh, that work and i want to transition into um, your recent visit to chicago Uh, you went to you decided to visit the cambodian museum and I was wondering what led you to make that uh, visit there. Yeah. um, I, as part of the Lotus Rising uh, Theater, a part of my like thought process is if I'm going to be doing this project the right way, where do I need to go study? Because it's not as if like, I had all these Southeast Asian resources here in Northwest Arkansas. I was a Southeast Asian resource for me. Um, so, and so um, I actually was invited by a friend, um, uh, Patricia Rodriguez. She was like, well, I'm going to Chicago. Do you want to go? 
And I said, yeah, that could be cool. I mean, that'd be a great vacation, but I'm a nerd. So let me look up what Cambodian things are up there. (laughs) So so my vacation was really a workcation. And what I found was the National Cambodian Heritage Museum in in Killingfield. Killingfield Memorial. Thank you. And I need to get that water. Um, And I was like, wait a minute. Oh my God. Oh my God. This is in the Midwest. Oh my God. I technically sort of kind of work in the Midwest. Oh my God, these are my peoples. And so basically I created my own internship. (laughs) And that was the email I think he got. And I was like, please just let me go up there and please let me like study whatever you have up there and please in exchange, let me do some theater with your youth and blah, 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 blah. And I literally thought I was going up there just to kind of, uh, and I imagined myself just with my headphones on, just reading every single thing that I could. But what ended up happening was completely something that I was not prepared for. Um, and uh, what I wasn't prepared for was crying every day. <laughs> what I wasn't prepared for was meeting someone new within the organization or within the community that immediately loved up on me. So I'm going to start crying now. <laughs> so, <It's> okay. <laughs> um, so after being in Bala Battery, um, I, I moved to Mississippi mm-hmm. and s- since 1994, I have been, sorry, it's okay. I have been without a strong Southeast Asian community. And I'm 34 years old now. Mm-hmm. And going to Chicago, it was it was like being baptized again in a way. Like wow. being blessed by so many people <laughs> who just wanted to know my story and wanted to know more about my work and just wanted to feed me, which was amazing. <laughs> and, <laughs> and who just wanted to spend time with me. Yeah. And they weren't in a space of judgment. They weren't in a space of um, curiosity. They were in a space of curiosity, but not of like the gawking kind. It was, hey, welcome to our community and share with us your gifts because we can share you, we'll share oh. our gifts with you. And I'm like, like I literally, sorry, when I left Chicago, I cried the whole road trip back. Yeah. And Patty was like, "Are you okay?" And I was like, "No." <laughs> she's like, "I know." She's like, she said, "I I know you're crying a lot because as soon as you go back to Northwest Arkansas, you're not going to have that that type of community there. Mm. It's different." And I'm like, "Yeah, it's like getting a glimpse of gold and then having it taken away." you know mm. and um it's oh god um i just can't wait to go back <laughs> yeah and, and you know yeah. i think i i wouldn't necessarily say I, like you like when you love like the idea of seeing the glimpse of gold never seeing it again but you know what's so nice is that we have the access on a digital level too i mean we've connected you've connected with other folks in Chicago. And then I think recently, I know I added you into the Kamai Leadership Alliance group that Kamrae had started yeah. on Facebook. So I feel like the world's gotten a lot smaller because um, several years ago, I had been away from the Kamai Vietnamese community and I was 
mostly in white centered spaces. And then I lived in Korea for a few years there, but um, I was always very scared to uh, be in that community because I've always seen myself as othered uh, because of those mixed identities, the queerness, the fact that I can't speak the language, uh, both languages in that case. And there was a lot of shame and, you know, being around a few Kamai folks uh, a couple of years ago really, um, really changed me because they taught me that I deserve to be there, that I deserve to be myself, that I don't have to fit into this specific box that our community tends to put us in or determine what we look like or what we or how we act and what we know um but i will say that i had friends that made sure that i mattered and to see our community in chicago do the same for you is powerful and i'm so glad to hear that that was the takeaway of that experience and that made you want to come back and to continue to explore so one of the questions I want to ask you is, what do you hope to learn or be proactive on when it comes to understanding your Khmer American roots? Yeah, um, well, I will, I will say, um, hopefully I'm pronouncing his name correctly. You know, Ompa? Uh, Lokom uh, Kompa, Kompa Sat, yes. Yeah, 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 so I'll call yes. Ompa. And he, like, basically, I don't know if he did this to everybody, like, He's if a that's great a visitor guy. there. He's but a great he basically man. dropped, like, the gauntlet for me and oh. was like, Simone, and I'm like translating, <laughs> Simone, I want you to take on like the mantle of suing for reparations for, for Cambodia. <laughs> like, I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> he was like, you're so strong. And I'm like, I know people. <laughs> so um, hopefully, um, uh, hopefully the takeaway is uh, if you go to the National Cambodian Heritage Museum, you might be given like a universal task. <laughs> So, well, he's almost 80 years old, and yeah. he, he's been telling me and a, a lot of uh, closely uh, people close to my age that like I can't do this anymore. I've got to handle. I've I've got to, uh, you know, pass on this uh, legacy work to you all, and trust that you'll take care of it. And so I think about that with my own father too, but when he mm -hmm. did so much and was never able to get the reparations that he deserved on so many refugees who uh, were dealing with so much injustice to this day as we speak. Um, but I do think like, you know, looking back what uh, Um Kampa had said, uh, you know, I don't know if we'll ever get that justice, but I will always say that we deserve to be there and that we deserve to not have to stay silent when people are coming for us. And I think that is something so beautiful about having a museum is that it teaches people about the history, but it gives space for uh, Khmer, Khmer Americans, Southeast Asian folks to have a space to perform, to understand their culture, to understand their history, to have dialogues with their own families about their history. Because oftentimes um, when we've had family members go into the museum, um, Chun, who was one of the tour guides, would always say that family members always struggle to talk about 
it with their own children. However, when you have a museum space, it opens up that dialogue. It feels safe for them to talk about it and to help their kids understand it in greater context because, you know, to tell a story, to tell years of trauma feels like a burden on their children. But to have that space at least relieves some of that, even though it can be quite triggering. Um, the museum space, as um, for those who haven't visited, does talk about that period of that genocide. But in the end, there is an opportunity to see the memorial and to also understand that there is hope, that there is a level of compassion that helps us guide forward and why our community has been so resilient in the face of darkness. So I'm glad that that visit in a way really uh, uplifted you and that you were able to get that connection. And then, uh, yeah, so, with that said, uh, what do you see yourself doing for this year and then moving forward? Yeah, so 2020 is going to be a really, really um, banner year for um, me as an artist. Um, obviously, it's going to be the very first time ever <laughs> that um, co-ethnic Southeast Asian communities will be performing in multiple spaces in Northwest Arkansas as one community. That is awesome. Um, and I am just so beyond excited and so thrilled to, to be working with um, other really strong Southeast Asian women to put this together and to be collecting these narratives finally that can be placed in a library that in the University of Arkansas Library where at any point, if anyone wants to look up our history, they can go to the library and find us, you know, where that, we haven't had that in the past. and we can start I, I do not see 2020 even though we're going to have the very first performances and productions and you normally in theater world once the productions are done they're done and you move on to the next thing yeah. I don't see it like that I see this as the beginning of something that could really shake up northwest Arkansas in a way that no one has ever seen before and to be working finally with my southeast Asian communities to be able to do that and to explore the possibilities things that they probably, even if they have been doing dance troops for a while, even today I was talking about, have you imagined it like this? And they're like, no, well, it's like this. I'm like, no, you as a performer in this community can imagine it any freaking way you want to. Don't prescribe yourself to what you think performances are or the arts are, because that's, that's not for us. What can we do for us? And it's just even being able to plant that question and to challenge <laughs> a little bit of what we think is possible for our communities and to say, you know what, we're going to do it on our way, on our terms, and we've seen Lotus Rising Theater do it, let's do it. To be able to show what is possible, I cannot even imagine what's going to happen in 2021. And I'm just really excited to, to help like a lotus kind of unearth it and bring it to the surface if possible if that's something that they want mm. and where can people uh find your work and what other plugs do you have where people can <laughs> follow your work <laughs> and the community's work yeah i just want to make sure that yeah. people are able to have access to seeing what you're doing and what the community is doing up in uh Northwest Arkansas. Yeah, absolutely. So first is my um, my personal website, which is simonecottrell.com. 
Um, that's S-I-M-O-N-E-C-O-T-T-R-E-O-L.com. Um, next is the Lotus Rising Theater Project um, website, which is Lotus Rising Theater, N-W-A dot uh, Weebly dot com. And then you can also find Lotus Rising Theater, and that's theater with T-H-E-A-T-R-E um, on Facebook and Instagram. Mm. Thank you so much for such a wonderful conversation. We, we, we share laughs, tears, thoughtfulness. <laughs> and just to like, you know, go from like talking about your upbringing in Alabama, Mississippi, and then into Arkansas, learning about your work as an artist, uh, connecting with the Khmer roots, um, dealing with the biracial phobia, um, the deportation issues that are going on, the racism. I mean, the fact that we covered so much in this conversation, I, I am just so thankful that you really gave us an insight of your work and also the ardent passion that you have for uh, the communities that you've been serving. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for you know, being on this show. And I hope that people get a good chance to uh, really absorb what was said and hope that they get caught into action to do something that's very meaningful to elevate uh, the important discussions that are happening that are harming our community. So I want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. And I hope that people get to follow uh, Simone. Thank you so much, so much. I'm so, so honored that you thought of me um, for this season. And I am beyond, um, there was a word that I wanted to use earlier. Um, it was serendipitous that we met. It was serendipitous that we had this biobattery connection. It was serendipitous that you found me in an email <laughs> that I sent. Yeah. And here we are a few months later having such deep, deep needed loving conversation. And, and I, will I love you. <laughs> and I will and I love you too. And I will continue on. And I wish you so much the best for 2020 and seeing you really kick ass and uh you know and hopefully you know build more muscles so you can stop the ice <laughs> from leaving I'm gonna just, I'm gonna, eventually it's going to just be one the finger Iron Man. one yeah <laughs> because but i know yeah, from because yeah, i know from because yeah. i know from my end i'm like you know doing like my uh my uh my chance to uh my evil <laughs> thoughts to like you know make to put curses on you're, doing, you're putting hexes on people absolutely absolutely because <laughs> every time i have to hear about what's going on that's all i think about it's like okay i gotta put some hexes here you know bathe in sheep's blood you know sorry to all the <laughs> animal rights activists out there but yeah oh. that's kind of where my feelings oh, honey, are at right know. now so we gotta look at the kamai magic <laughs> let's make it more specific <laughs> yeah thank you so much all right you're so welcome